Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. The word of the Lord. I want to apologize quickly. I know it's very cold. That's why the windows are open. We have not figured out a way to shut off the air conditioning. So at least I know that you will be awake for, for the next part of this. But before we continue, would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Lord, we quiet our hearts before you. You have already been with us as we pray and as we sing. And you are with us even now, which is a remarkable thing. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us in every way to hear you, to be changed by you, to be strengthened by your gospel, and to be made more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Nick and I were driving to St. Louis. Our National General Assembly was there a couple of weeks ago. And as I was talking with him, I looked over at the dashboard and was a little bit nervous because I saw that orange line all the way beyond E. And so I kind of raised the question to Nick and he looked at it. He's like, oh yeah, we got a quarter of a tank. I know that's not a very exciting story, but we understand probably what that's like, right? Have you ever had it where you think you see something rightly, but you are wrong because you're just seeing it from the wrong angle? Like maybe if you've ever been to a baseball game, you're sitting on the third base side and a pitch that you are sure is a strike, but if you saw the replay, you realize, oh, actually it's a ball. I just was seeing it wrong. We oftentimes have what seems like the right information. We believe we're right but we are mistaken just because we're sitting in the wrong place. We're seeing it from the wrong perspective. I've thought sometimes about um, what it would be like to grow up 
born, say, in a, in a white family in the early 19th century in the South. If, I, if that were true of me or of you, here's what I can say pretty confidently. We almost certainly would have been racist if that's where we were born. We almost certainly would have believed in slavery. And the reason for that is not because you or I would have been especially immoral or especially unintelligent or we were lacking important information. The reason would have just been because that's the perspective we grew up with. We would be wrong, deeply wrong, even though we thought we were right, and the reason is because we are sitting in the wrong place. You know, one of the interesting things for me about this whole last year and a half, not just interesting, it's strange, it's just like how deeply divided people are about questions that seem to be like questions of fact when it comes to COVID. Like, is COVID something that we should have been worried about or not? Are masks a good idea? Were they a bad idea? Is vaccines a good idea? Is it a bad idea? There are people who are deeply passionate on both sides, as we know. And just because of the law of non-contradiction, we know at least one side is wrong. But the differences are not because one side is intelligent and the other side's dumb. No, both, they're, they're smart people on both sides. It's not because one side has information and the other doesn't. Both have the access to the same information. It's well, it's about perspective, isn't it? You can almost guarantee, or not guarantee, but it's pretty close, that if you know if someone's coming from the right or the center or the left, you know what they are likely to say about these issues. It's about where you're sitting. Someone is going to be wrong even though they think they were right because they were sitting in the wrong place, coming from the wrong perspective. The point is that oftentimes probably more often than we realize, we can do careful thinking. We can look at the stuff that we feel like we need to look at. We can be confident that we are right, and yet we can be completely mistaken because we're viewing it from the wrong place. If you need any convincing of that, I'd like you to just for a moment think about a younger version of you. Think tw 10 years back, or if you're old enough, try to think 20 years back and think about some of the decisions you made, maybe some of the style decisions that you made, and how confident you were in the moment you were right and how wrong you were. You have the same information now that you did then. You're not smarter now. If anything, when you get older, you get dumber. But the reality is even still when you look back, you see things more clearly because you are sitting in a different place now than you were before. And of course, by implication, 20 years from now, you will be looking at this version of yourself and shaking your head at times. We, we sometimes have the information we feel like we need, we are thinking carefully, and yet, because we're not in the right place, we're not coming from the right perspective, we are getting it wrong. And that's relevant for us when we start thinking about questions about how we view God and how we view this world. That is an area where there's obviously deep disagreement. We, we understand that. Is, is this world chaotic? A, a cold, unfeeling place without any order or direction where your best hope is just to kind of make something of life? Or at the heart of this universe, is there a God who loves and forgives and is caring for his people? There are people on both sides of this issue, and really smart people. And, and both sides of this issue, people have, they're, they're looking at the same information. 
the difference is, is not about intelligence or not. The difference is that people are sitting in different places. They're coming at it from different angles. And so the question when we're thinking about something that's big, and this is big, right, is, is where is the right place for us to be sitting if we want to see things clearly? How can we make sure we're not like looking at that gauge from completely the wrong angle and missing it completely? As we're thinking about this, I think it's important to ask the question that seems to be presupposed by the way that we think sometimes, and that is, are we actually confident that we have the abilities, the equipment in our minds to be able to make good judgment calls on God? Hopefully you understand what I'm saying. I'm saying, look, we seem to, by the way that everyone says, here's how I think of God, or this is my opinion of God, we have this idea that our brain has the capacity through analysis, through looking at all the data, to make fairly likely assumptions about who God is and who God isn't. And I want to ask us, why? Why do we think that our brains are able to do that? It's not like God is some sort of object like gravity where you can do experimentation. He's by any measure, bigger than that. And in fact, Scripture specifically tells us that we can't do this. That anytime we try to use our own understandings to think of a God who stands outside of time and outside of space, we're inevitably going to make God just kind of a larger, better version of us and therefore get things completely wrong. If we take what Christianity says seriously as at least one way of seeing things, we should recognize that by definition, as long as we're trying to figure things out on our own, we are always going to be sitting in the wrong place. You are always going to be skewing things if you are trying to understand a God that is infinite with a very finite way of seeing things. There is only one person who actually is able to conceive of who God is, what he is like, and that is God himself, which means the only way for us to ever actually see God rightly is if God tells us. The only place, if we are sitting, where we can actually sit in the right place to see things right is if basically God says, come up and sit next to me and I will show you things from my perspective. And that's exactly the central claim of Christianity, isn't it? That God is a God who speaks to us, who reveals himself to us in his word and above all else in Jesus. And that's, that's the claim that's kind of lying underneath this psalm that we just read. So, the very beginning of our psalm starts with kind of a thesis statement. You know, praise is due to you, O God. To you shall vows be performed. This, he, you know, he is making a very explicit claim that this world has God at its center, that, that in everything God is at work, and as we understand that, we will realize he is worthy of all of our praise and admiration and our worship and our celebration and joy. This is how he is seeing things, and he tells us where he is seeing it from. Did you notice? Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Zion isn't just a place on a map. Zion in the Bible speaks of something 
bigger than that. It speaks of kind of metaphorically where God connects with his people. Zion is the place of the temple, of, of God dwelling with his people. It's the place where God shows himself. And so when someone like David here is saying that he is in Zion and seeing these things, he's saying basically God has brought me next to him and I am now seeing the world from God's perspective as he is showing me through his eyes and here's what I see. Praise is due to you, O God. So this morning, here's, here's what I'd like to invite us to do. Depending on where you're at, you can be coming from all sorts of places. Maybe for you, even this morning, you have been feeling for a while like you understand the basic claims of Christianity and it's just not stacking up. It's not making sense. Or maybe you, you feel like you kind of believe, but it's just so hard to believe. And I want to ask you to join with me as, as the psalmist kind of invites us to sit next to him as he is seeing things from a different place and to look at the world through the lens of what God is showing him. And just for you, if you're having a hard time with that, just suspend disbelief for about 20 minutes and just look through his eyes and see this from a different place. There are three things in this psalm that he invites us to see from this perspective. To see the world, to see the story of our lives, and to see the economy all from this place in Zion. So the first one that we see is him giving up a perspective on this world that at the heart of this world is a welcoming God. There's a, a poem uh, written at the end of the 19th century by writer Stephen Crane. Very short. Here's how it goes. It says, A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, that fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. In my opinion, that, that, that small poem encapsulates the way this world can often feel. Like reality, like this world is cold, and it could not care less whether we prosper or whether we suffer. That there is no sense of obligation the world has to us. It's just up to us. We have to work. We have to make things of ourselves. Yes, we exist, and that just means we have to fight for things. That is so often the way this world can feel to people. Cold, impersonal, unfeeling. Isn't that sometimes how it, how it just feels to us? And yet what happens in the psalm is, is basically God, as we sit in Zion, says, here, let, let, let me show you something different. The psalmist says, let me show you something different. It will feel unlikely. It will feel incredibly improbable, but here's what you see. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer. Do you realize how completely counterintuitive just that line is? Not just that there is a God who lies at the heart of all reality, who is way bigger than us, but that that God actually listens to you and to me. That even right now as I say, Father, please help us to hear this and to see you, God just heard that and he is responding. When we are in a moment of stress and we can't say anything except Jesus helped, that God hears, that he is the one who hears prayer. Do you realize how improbable that feels? 
And then he pushes it even further. When iniquities prevail against me, he says, literally it's when the list of the things I have done wrong are too great for me. And we understand that, don't we? I mean, we are in a world that does feel incredibly unforgiving at times. You know, we hear the phrase, you've made your bed, now lie in it. There's a sense that when you make mistakes, you just have to expect to experience the consequences of those mistakes, which stinks, because we make lots of mistakes. We make mistakes just because we forget sometimes, because we are selfish sometimes. We are, there are things we really should do that we don't do because we're lazy or because we're afraid. There are terrible things that we shouldn't do, but we do because we're angry or afraid. And the longer we live, the longer that list of things that we've done wrong becomes, and it just becomes this long, long, long sheet of paper. And at a certain point, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, this list of my wrongdoings is just too great for me. I, what hope do I have in an unforgiving world? But, but God says, come here, let me show you this from the perspective of Zion. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. That word atone literally means cover over. If you can just imagine for a moment this long sheet of paper with a list and God coming with a supernatural whiteout and he just covers each and every single one and suddenly you have a blank sheet of paper in front of you and that's, that's what we're being told that God does. He wipes out all of our wrongs. Not because they didn't matter, they did but because he has dealt with them. That's the way this world is from the perspective of Zion. And, and yet it's even more than that. If we keep going to verse 4, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Have you ever as a kid been picked first for a sports team or something else? I haven't, but I, I've always thought that it would have been awesome. I mean, just to feel wanted, right? And we're in a world where, like, someone like a Stephen Crane says, the world doesn't pick you, the world doesn't care, it's cold, unfeeling, I have no obligation to you. It says, but what, does, what do we see from Zion that, that God says, I want you. I pick you. You're mine. The world might not care about you, or people might not care about you, but I think you are incredibly important to me. Be my son. Be my daughter. It feels incredibly improbable, doesn't it, when we just try to sit with that, and yet the one person who is, has the right to tell us, God says, this is how things are. And if we're at all uncertain, he doesn't just tell us, he shows us. Think of when he became one of us, what we see in Jesus. The leper comes to Jesus, says, sir, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I am willing, and he cleans him. He hears prayer. What does Jesus do when he walks by these tax collectors and these silly fishermen? He says, follow me. I want you. He chooses. And what does he do? He goes to the cross and bears our sins so that his blood can be that supernatural whiteout that makes our sins as white as snow. Do you see the difference? The world is not cold and unfeeling. It feels like that from where we're sitting, but if we can just sit and see things from a God's eye perspective, we realize that at the heart of this reality is a God who warmly loves us and forgives us 
and wants us. So the second thing we see as we kind of continue on beginning in verse 5 is, is not only that we have a, wor- a world where a welcoming God is at the center, but we have a story of salvation. Now that's not how the story feels from just kind of a normal perspective. It, if we're honest, it can feel like we're in the middle of some kind of tragedy, right? Because I think the default way of viewing kind of the, the things that are going around us, that it's not like the world is good or bad, it just is. And it's not like things are going to some clear direction, they're just going. And what that means is it's up to us from our perspective. We're the ones who can determine whether this world goes towards a happy ending or a sad ending, whether our lives go towards a happy ending or a sad ending. And that, that might be okay if we felt like there's a good reason to hope in humanity because we believe that humanity is incredibly competent, incredibly powerful, incredibly able to get along, incredibly good. But if, if humanity, if we are weak and oftentimes confused and foolish, and if we, if we can't get along, along with each other, and if there's a lot of issues of corruption, then what hope do we have? It just feels like the events come without any order as one thing after another. There's COVID, there's civil unrest, there's natural disasters, there's assassinations, one after another, and really our whole story is just trying to survive until we die. It... it if, if we're just viewing it from one place, it feels like we're just living in a senseless tragedy. But not from Zion. When we're sitting from where God sees things, we see something dramatically different. We see, first of all, that there is a God at the heart of these things who is unshakable. It says that he is the one who by his strength established the mountains. So if we think mountains are strong, just think that there's someone who's stronger than that who was able to make them. It says that he is the one who stills the roaring of the seas as chaotic as hurricanes can make the waters or as chaotic as nations rising up against nations can be. There is a God who is so far beyond that that all he needs to do is just put his hand and they're stilled. And what does this God do? It says that not only is our God one who hears us, but verse 5, by awesome deeds, you answer us. Specifically, you answer us with righteousness. You are a God who makes things right. You are the God of our salvation. So David probably was thinking, you think of how for generation after generation, God's people in Egypt were praying and praying as they were under Pharaoh's hand in slavery. And then what does God do? He steps in. And he doesn't just step in in a subtle way. He steps in in a terrifying way. There is sea turned to blood. There are gnats. There are frogs. There is the sky becoming dark. There is hail coming down. And then as they are brought out, they come through the water being pulled side by side. And do you think they're feeling pretty relaxed? No, they're terrified. But they also see that this God who does awesome deeds is making things right and is saving them. And so they cry out also, by awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. Or we think only of centuries later as as God becomes one of us and Jesus literally with a word just silences the roaring seas. And then when he goes to the cross, Satan, the great 
enemy of humanity, who believes he is won by killing our king, finds out to his dismay and to our triumph that that king who looks like he lost actually crushed him and crushed sin and crushed death by dying and rising again and rising, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And when his disciples see him, they fall down before him. By awesome deeds, you work righteousness, O God of our salvation. And that's not just something in the past. You know, every time someone hears the gospel, every time someone hears about Jesus and and is moved towards faith, there is a spiritual resurrection that takes place, and Satan is crushed again. And that is the story of what actually is happening. A story that will climax with this king coming again and making everything right. And it doesn't feel like that at times right now. Any good story where there's a triumph will have moments where things feel like it's touch and go, but we know that there is a God who is stronger than the mountains, who can silence the seas, who is guiding everything for the good, so that at the end, it won't just be that everything is going to be okay. That's an understatement. Everything is going to be literally awesome because of what God is doing. That is the story. It's a story of salvation. So the view from Zion gives us one more snapshot, and it's a snapshot, I suppose we could say, of the economy, and that's what the final stanza is about. And that might seem like a strange thing to say, because if if you looked at the verses, you don't see anything about like stock markets or bonds. It's just about rain and crops. But of course, you don't have stock markets in the time of Israel. The economy was an agrarian economy. It was all about the rain and the crops and the sheep. That is where wealth was found. So when I was thinking about the economy, when I was thinking about wealth in connection to this, um, I decided to do a Google search. I know that's redundant. I could have just said I Googled this. Um, The word productivity. And if you want, you can try this sometime yourself. And I actually was surprised by what happened. I was expecting kind of what I saw at first. So, you know, you have like different ones like productivity guides and how to improve your productivity at work. And I scrolled down and I kept scrolling and I kept going. And it said, best productivity tools of 2021. Now, here's what I was looking for. I was assuming that there was going to be something in all of this that at least was somewhat critical about this whole emphasis on productivity. Because, you know, people disagree on everything. So you should be able to find some contrarian voice here. But I kept scrolling. 50 ways to improve productivity. Kept scrolling. Why is productivity important? I'm telling you, the entire page of 100 entries and every single one basically says, productivity is awesome, and if you're not productive, you stink. And what I was realizing as I was coming to the end is I think I have found what our our national value is above all else. It's productivity. Which makes sense. If, if our hope for many people is in capitalism, is in the economy, and that is where many people are sitting, then salvation comes by being productive. Your worth is in what you do. And we even feel that. How often, if someone asks, how was your day, you say either it was productive, which means good, or it wasn't very productive, which means bad. You are saying to yourself that your worth is not who you are as one who's in God's image, but what you do. 
Do we realize how sad that is, how dehumanizing it is that we are just in some ways by society viewed as a cog where all we're trying to do is make stuff and get stuff done and once we stop having any more productive value, we're thrown into a nursing home or hospital and forgotten about because we're no longer valued. Do we realize how messed up that is? But God says, come, come to Zion, and I'm going to tell you there is a different economy that is actually at work. Verse 9, it says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. And that is a good translation. Enriching is the idea. You, you pour your wealth upon this world is the idea. And you make it wealthy. And then there's image after image as God pours the rain down on the world and crops grow everywhere. God continues to pour the rain down and, and the crops are harvested and the wagons that are bringing the crops are overflowing because there's so much. God pours the rain down and grass grows and there are sheep everywhere. And, and the point in all of these images is simple, that in this world we live in, we are experiencing actually an economy of grace. That at the heart of all reality is a God who gives and gives and gives. Why does this world even exist? Have you ever asked that question? Why, why did God decide to make the stars and the blades of grass and the antelope? Why does God make sunsets and, and the ability to make something good to eat? Why does God give us the joy of, of other people? It's not because God needed it. He needed nothing. It's because God desires to give it to us. Our entire life, when we see it from the right place, is an ongoing gift. It is a gift every time we are able to enjoy a taste of cheesecake or any time we enjoy an embrace from a friend. It is a gift every time we breathe with the bodies we have been given. It is a gift. Everything in this world is God's grace to us. Even the ability to work is that it is God giving us the dignity of being able to partner with him and being creative and caring for this world. It is gift after gift after gift. And if we become confused and don't see this, we only need to remember that God, at the most important point in history, gave his son and his son gave his life that we might receive life and have joy. And his promise for the future is not, now that I've saved you, I'm going to make you little workers to do all the stuff I don't want. No, he says, I am redeeming you so that I can continue to show my kindness to you forever. That's God's economy, which means our primary role from God's perspective is not producers. It's enjoyers. We are made to enjoy God to be human beings who are constantly beholding his goodness and participating in his goodness with a gift of work and being filled with delight as we received his gifts after gifts after gifts. Do you see how different a view of the world, of the economy it is from Zion? Now, I realize that it might feel to some of you right now 
hard to believe. It is hard to believe. And you might go, but what about all of the suffering? What about all of the difficulties? This doesn't fit all of that. And I want to say, if you spend any time in the Psalms, there is a lot of wrestling with those exact things. There is an acknowledgement that we are not yet at the end of the story. That sometimes it seems forever for God to answer us when we pray. That it is sometimes hard to see God's grace because this thing is still in process and we haven't yet come to the end. But I want to answer your question with a question. What about Jesus? If the only right way of seeing things is from God's perspective of what he shows us, And if Jesus is the fullness of what God shows us about himself, then the only way really to answer this question is to look at Jesus. And I want to ask you, if you are having a hard time believing this, what do you see when you look at Jesus? Because what I see is someone who welcomes, is someone who gives himself, is someone who works salvation. That, I believe, is the only right place from which to view things. So there is a story, actually, at the very, near the very end of the, the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, where all of our favorite characters, like Peter and Lucy and Edmund and a whole bunch of others, are, are outdoors in this most glorious area. You know, Lewis talks about the the deep blueness of the sky, the beautiful grass. They're by these trees, and as they eat, the fruit is is so good. It is just indescribably beautiful, and there's just joy for everyone there except there's this one group of people, the dwarves, who are kind of all huddled in one circle, and they are convinced that they are in a dark, stinky barn. And when they're being given some of this great food, as they eat it, they're like, oh, that's hay, that's just trough water. And as Aslan, you know, this Jesus figure in the Narnia series, speaks to them to call them, they just think that someone's trying to trick them. There is no way in their brains they can get out of this place. This is where they are. And Aslan sadly says at some point, you see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. I've realized that it is an easy thing for me sometimes to somehow imagine that I'm in a barn, to be so focused on the stress of the moment that I fail to see the glory and the grace that is all around me. And I want to invite you, along with me, to not be afraid of being taken in, but instead to let our Lord Jesus take us out and see the goodness of what God is doing and what our future is. And so even now, I want to invite you to join with me in prayer and if appropriate, if God is moving in this way, to to confess where we are seeing things wrongly and to open ourselves up to let him to show us what is true, that we might more and more be his. Would you join with me in a time of silent confession?